A man become preeminent, he is expected to have enthusiasms. 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 What am I? What draws my admiration? What is that which gives me joy? Baseball. everyone welcome to the pull hitter podcast your destination for all resources and tools to grind your way to ultimate fantasy baseball success i'm rob d the dead pull hitter catch me on twitter at dead pull hitter my guest today is prospect writer for baseball america mr jeff how it's going today man hey right man how you doing i'm excited to be here one of my uh one of my favorite fantasy podcasts to listen to actually because Guys bring information, strategy. You get a lot of NFBC players that don't talk to anybody else. So that certainly helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's a great little angle, I think, that I have here. Um, I think we can all come to our conclusions on player analysis, you know, on our own because of the wealth of information out there and projection systems, whatever. You can come to a conclusion, but... I felt like we don't hear a lot about how people come to those spots and how do they build their team. So I really enjoy it. I think I learned something pretty much every time I have a guest on talking, whatever it is. Um, and you're going to bring the heat today talking about all things prospects as you cover. So um, like I said, I know you work for Baseball America now, but I just want to give me um, a little scoop through your life into baseball. You know, Tell me how you became who you are today yeah um it's funny it's uh so i'm 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 40 years old i just i'll be 41 very soon and i just started doing this like as a full-time job november of 2021 um congrats yeah man it's uh it's been a blast i was in sales for 16 years before that out of college uh you know i played baseball growing up um followed baseball Played a little bit of fantasy baseball and stuff when I was in my 20s, like late 20s, early 30s. Um, but I mean, like, I kind of had a life. So like I, I didn't, <laughs> I, you know, I was I was constantly out doing things, etc. I was busy in college. Um, funny enough, I was in a I was in a rap group in college, actually, where like we we put out a lot of like, you know, self published mixtapes we ended up getting a, a record deal right at the end we went on a little tour of the east coast i played in philadelphia and you know new york and a bunch of different clubs and right down like to north carolina and georgia so like uh i made beats and and i rapped a little bit and uh we did stuff like that we had a television show that was syndicated on a on a the dish dish remember the what? dish yeah like direct yeah, tv so there was a sh a channel called the Freedom Network, and like at one o'clock in the morning, we had like petitioned these guys. At one o'clock in the morning, we got them to pick up our like cable access hip hop video show. <laughs> so like we would put on like 
classic 90s and like early 2000s underground hip hop videos. And then we would have like our performances. And so like I grew up in um, southeastern Massachusetts. So like away from Boston in like this area kind of nestled below Cape Cod. Um, that's like very like um, like I'm, I'm partially Brazilian. Uh, my mother's very white. My dad's Brazilian and Portuguese. Um, and then, like most of my friends are Cape Verdean. Cape Verde is an island off the coast of Africa that was uh, like essentially like a Portuguese. I think it was like a slave trade route or whatever. And um, they speak Portuguese. And there were a lot of Cape Verdean immigrants that had come over in like the 50s and 60s, like to the area I grew up in. So like I grew up like in a very like multicultural area of Massachusetts, which is very different from Boston, which is like super staunchly white. Um, so like I grew up like playing baseball with like, you know, uh, a lot of these guys and we went to college together and just sort of had our, our like hustle. And I think it's funny because that's where I kind of learned to write. And that's kind of where I learned like to put stuff out there. And this is like pre MySpace even. This is pre Facebook. This is pre like YouTube, you know, any social media. So like you had to hustle to get stuff out there. And a lot of it was like hand to hand. So like I did that and uh, I met my wife when I was young. I got married at 24. I kind of got a job, quit all that stuff. And I had started to do like some work more or less like on the side. Cause I, I still wanted to create and do things and like doing rap shows at night, staying in the studio, all that sort of stuff was just like a not, not, not possible. Um, so I started like uh, playing fantasy baseball and my old baseball coach, who was a scout for the brewers uh, connected with me again. I saw him someplace or whatever and was like, Hey, you know, like, why don't you go to Cape Cod League games and like you could write some reports for me and like I just need to see like this guy, this guy, and this guy, right? So I did that for a couple of years and that kind of rekindled my interest in baseball. I, I think at that point it was very it, things were different. Um, and then I got really into fantasy and we started to have my wife and I started to have kids and I can remember um, the thing that kind of changed things for me was I, I was reading Andy Barron's on Yahoo because like I played in a, like when I initially did it, I came from having played football before. So like, I liked like head to head leagues and head to head category leagues, like made sense. Like that's traditionally what a lot of people played if they didn't play Roto. Yep. Um, and I was playing with my friends and stuff. So we wanted to be able to like talk smack from week to week. So um, I started playing in like those leagues. So I would read a lot of like the Yahoo as experts, like Evans and Funston, um and like barons and like those guys and i remember andy barons like was talking about like the friends and family lead that yahoo did it I, they may still do it at this point but he talked about gray albright and he described him as the hunter s thompson of fantasy baseball <laughs> and, and kind of being an out there person and, and a person who like, reads a lot and you know i love hunter s thompson so like the description to me was like <laughs> all right this guy's interesting man and so like i went and i read rasball and i can remember like at that point, fantasy writing was very, like, by the book. Like, I think it was much more like what you would get, like, from a newspaper. You know what I mean? Like, there was a structure mm -hmm. to it. You kind of followed certain things. There were certain terms that got used. And there was, like, not a lot of personality, which I don't think is the case now. Now we have a lot of personality. Um, so, like, Gray was different. And so, like, it caught my interest. And... The first year I drafted with Gray was the year that Scherzer and Goldschmidt broke out and he was all over him. And I won like every league that I was in. 
And like I, that head to head points, uh, excuse me, categories league. Like I think I won by like 60 games and then like just swept in the playoffs. Cause like Scherzer was like, it was like his first year as like an ace with Detroit. And it was like Goldie's first year, like, you know, as like an MVP type of first baseman, you were getting those guys in the eighth, eighth, ninth, 10th round. Wow. And it was like huge value. So like I was hooked and, um, I, you know, I was pretty stupid, I think for a little bit and I would comment and kind of get the shit kicked out of me in the Rasball comments, which were fierce back then. <laughs> and um, I built up, like, I learned enough from, like, not knowing anything that, like, I started to know a little bit. And so I reached out to somebody there in, like, the comments and was like, I want to write. And they were like, blah, blah, blah. We have, like, a DFS writer job, like, on a Saturday, which nobody wanted because you had to write it on Friday night. So I had kids at this point. I got nothing going on. I'm coming home from work. I'm relaxing. I'm hanging out on the couch watching a movie with my wife. And like, you know, I'm I'm like, dude, yeah, I'll, I'll look at lineups and figure stuff out. Um, so I wrote, a, I had to write a sample. And I remember I wrote a sample about fading Clayton Kershaw, like in this one day's like games, because he was so expensive. And uh, it was good. They liked it. And, you know, they hired me. And so I started writing that once a week. And so what I did was, this was when like DraftKings was fairly new. So I would just, create contests every night that i would run like on saturdays that would run and i would link it down for like people are doing like a 20 team contest like a two dollar buy-in and like we paid the first three spots or whatever right so i always started running those and they started filling up and so like i started running them every day like on my way to work i would i would take a train to boston at 5 a.m and i would create them and i would write my article that day and so I started doing it like maybe two, three times a week. And I was running contests like every day. And it built up to the point that we were filling like, this is maybe like 2014. We were filling like four contests, like 20 team contests a night, which was like pretty good. And, you know, so I started to build up a little bit from that. And like, I think Gray at that point, like saw what I was doing and like gave me an opportunity to write two start pitchers. So I did that for like the end of the season. And then... Going into that off season, the guy that was writing prospects um, quit. And so he was looking for somebody that would be willing to write prospects. And he was like, you know anything about prospects? And I like grew up near a minor league ballpark. I, you know, I, one of my favorite things about like, like where I grew up, like outside of Providence was I was near Pawtucket. So like I went to a ton of AAA games, you know, I got autographs from Mo Vaughn and all, you know, all these guys that, you know, eventually went on to play in the big leagues. Um, and just not as successful necessarily as Mo Vaughn. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, so like, I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So that gave me an opportunity to kind of dig back into prospects. And I think like when I do things, like it's just my nature that I just try to do it like my all. Like I don't really care about everything else. Like it's just like, I'm going to do the best I can do. I want to learn as much as I possibly can. And it just grew from there. Like I think within you know, within that time, like we started a prospect podcast with Michael Halpern, who now does imaginary brick wall. Uh, this is like 2016. I think us and maybe James Anderson were like the first dynasty focused, like prospect focused podcasts that were sort of out there. Um, and then like, I remember I did my first, like first year player draft list and that term first year player draft <laughs> came from my longtime dynasty league that I was in like my my category head-to-head -head dynasty league like that's what that term came from fyp really yeah 
And wow. I put it on the Razzball and I was like, because people used to rank like the first 10 players in a draft. Like the, they, there wasn't like, there wasn't this like fever pitch for like dynasty. And I think that like James Anderson and um, like Tim uh, McLeod, Tim McLeod like Rich yeah. Wilson, like their stuff mm-hmm. and like my stuff. I think that that built up a lot of the dynasty stuff and like the BP guys, you know, because it was, there's like it exploded in like 2017 2018 even if you look at like the page views on like some of these articles like they exploded from what they had been and you know there was no like you know that's when like eric cross came out right around that time and like uh you know clegg and a lot of these guys you know that since have done a great job of it and i think are a great entry point for like baseball people and fantasy people um but there like there wasn't even that right so like I, we built out a lot of stuff. I, you know, I remember like competing with James, like who could put out like a deep, a deeper list, like a top 200, <laughs> a top 400, a top 500, you know, of prospects. Um, and it's just cool to see like how the space grew. And like, I kind of grew to a point where like, I was more interested in like being a scout or like baseball itself and like understanding that better, particularly like, my love of the Cape. I, I live in Massachusetts. I'm right near the Cape Cod league. I grew up right outside the Cape Cod league. I had friends that I played in high school with that played in the Cape Cod league in college. So like, it's something that to me is like, that's like church to me. You know what I mean? Like the Cape Cod league is like legitimately my church. So like, you know, I was able to explore all this by, by leaving Rasball and starting prospects live. And that's why I started that site. It was to sort of be focused more on, like the scouting side of things, the real baseball side of things. Um, because I never thought baseball America would ever hire me. I actually applied for a job at baseball America the week that I started prospects live. And I heard back, I remember we got an email back from, I think it was John Manuel or JJ who were like, you know, JJ's now my boss and like, you know, <laughs> my mentor in some ways. And like, um, like a few years later, like the opportunity presented itself and, I had built up prospects live into, I think a pretty damn good website that it is right now. I mean, those guys have done a great job over there and uh, you know, I was, it was difficult to step away, but at the same time, like I'm a much happier person because like I get to watch baseball all day long and just talk about baseball and think about baseball and work with people that like I read during that come up, you know, like people that were instrumental in me learning more about baseball, whether they even realized that or not. So I think it was just a war of attrition at the end. Um, but you know, it's the, other than my children and my family, like, I think it's, it's the greatest thing I ever did. And I never thought it would be, I always thought it would be the stupidest thing I ever did. <laughs> We're spending all this time here. And like, um, it's led me to like, I was at the winter meetings. I was at the futures game. Like, you know, um, I was, I broke, you know, I, I broke stuff in the draft this summer. Like I did things I never thought I'd ever be capable of. And, um, that's awesome. Yeah, man, it's cool. That's and it's a all great feeling, of man. Baseball. It's yeah, all because I'm, of fantasy baseball. Right? Isn't that like, crazy? It is. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that, like, when you just said that. It's some big words, you know? Um, so big, impactful words. And it's crazy, all from fantasy baseball. But that's that's great. I mean, you were persistent, and you kept at it, and you followed... You followed I'm sure you followed your heart and your instincts, you know? Because you seem... From what I've talked to you on Twitter and I've heard on your podcast, you just 
you seem like a real genuine person who understands people and things very well. So I'm sure you at some point, you know, made some calculated choices, but also that fun inside of you comes out too. And you're like, I could do something with this and you put in your hard work into it and that's what you get, you know? And that's, I feel that for for anyone listening, who's just starting out or just trying it, you know, you, it's not going to happen overnight. Don't get, you know, don't get discouraged by how many people follow you or, or, you know, like just, just be yourself and put your, your best version of yourself out there and eventually good things will happen for you, you know? Yeah, man. I think that's, uh, you know, I, I think part of it is just, you know, have enough ego and have no ego in the right situations. Like mm, yeah, <laughs> there's some yeah. balance of that too. Like you need to be able to be a self-starter and like, you know, but I think at the end, like I, I just tried to write stuff that I wanted to know. Like, like I more or less was like, I'm going to use this as my opportunity to do the research that I have to do for my leagues. And I would think that the things that I'm interested in learning are probably things that other people are interested in learning. And you go from there. Like, that's where you find an angle, you know? Um, right. Because it's stuff that you genuinely would use. And, you know, I hope, uh, yeah, I hope, you know, I hope people people get that out of my, my I have a lot of passion for what I do. <laughs> that helps you, a lot. You do. You do. No, you definitely do. I hear it in your work. It shines through, man. You know, I love it. And um, that's a great, uh, another great thing you said, like, write what interests you. Because um, some things may just feel so pushed forward because of, oh, this is what gets clicks and this is what gets grabs. And uh, this person and this person are writing about such and such uh, pitch metrics or whatever. And so I'll do the same thing. But um, eventually it all becomes just reading the same articles, but you could stand out too by really following, you know, any instinct that you have. And it's so, it's so true what you said. I, like I said, this podcast was born out of wanting to figure, like wanting to hear what other people did in building teams and how they played fantasy baseball. And it's, um, that's it. Just do it. That's it. Write it down and go do it, man. Simple as that. But yeah, no prospects live. I know you, I was, I think I was pretty much around from when you guys started that. Um, and yeah, it's been really helpful and, me yeah. just learning about <clears throat> prospects because yeah, you know, back in the day, right. We, we used to get like a book. You used to get the book <laughs> for a draft, you know, you'd have to buy a publication yep. and, and in the back it would be like, get these rookies. And it'd be like five guys written down and everyone at the draft was going after the same five guys, you know, now yeah, it's, exactly. Right. And now yeah. it's just, now it's just like, like you had the challenge with James saying who could write a deeper list. It's, I feel that and who can throw out this most obscure person yeah. with this talent that stands out. You want to be the first on a guy, but it's, it's that that's born from digging, digging deep and trying to really cover so much stuff, you know, because there is so much stuff out there. There's so many good resources and tools where you can really just, your head can spin at times if you're trying to keep up with all of it. Yeah, no, I, uh, I absolutely agree. You know, a hundred percent. That's, uh, it's so true. There's so much stuff out there that you just eventually you have to pick what, what works for you and, you know, the quickest, easiest, most effective way too, right. Cause <laughs> yep. th- you could, you could go crazy with research in this area. There's just so many things in baseball, <laughs> that so you, can many research, things. you know, so many levels, so many different angles, so many different roles, uh, et cetera. Right. You know, 
So let's get into some of that, right? Let's get into some of the, the gritty details here, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, like I mentioned, hearing you on your podcast um, and talk on other people's podcasts, it just it's, sounds so easy for you. And I just admire that because obviously that's what you do. You need to be able to break it down. But when I hear it, I'm like, wow, it's it just sounds like you just close your eyes and just let go on on all these great things to help you. And um, so when I'm sitting at home watching the games, um, you know, and for both real life and fantasy purposes, like how how can we make better player evaluations? Yeah, and I think, you know, um, some of this stuff is looking at things over a bigger sample size. Like that's, if you watch a lot of games, you watch a particular team a lot. Um, I think you just naturally probably notice certain tendencies in guys. Like, what does this guy not like to swing at with two strikes? What part of the plate does this guy swing, not cover? And it takes like watching these guys a lot to identify some of that stuff. Cause you can get, you can get a snapshot of one day, right. And you catch a, you catch a pitcher when he's actually landing <laughs> strikes or the umpire is giving him, you know, uh, a few balls off the plate. He typically wouldn't get. And all of a sudden you're like, wow. And like that can happen early. And all of a sudden hitters are like big strikes on today. You got to swing on stuff in the outer half. Right. And the hitters know it and the pitcher knows it. And he's just, you know, daring them to swing at stuff outside and guys are chasing and those hitters might look worse than they typically would. Those pitchers might look better than he typically would. So for me, it's always trying to get as like big of a sample on a player as possible. Now I think for different purposes, you don't always necessarily have all that. Like if you see an incredible fastball, like it has movement, it has ride, it has good release point for out of the pitcher's hand it's sitting 96 to 97 miles per hour. You're probably not going to have to see that a whole lot to know that like, Hey, he's got a plus fastball. You know, you may need to see it a few times to know if he commands that plus fastball. Right. And like the spots in the zone that he can land against righties versus lefties. Um, But I think it's just, I think it's just trusting your eyes to an extent, watching stuff and like trying to block out narratives there's too often that I've, especially with like working on like the draft, like the MLB draft side of things. Like there's been too many times where I see something, I believe something, but somebody who I think is really smart and whose opinion I respect sees it differently. And I abandon the stuff that I think and know, right? And it's okay for like rational minds to differ on things. I think that's the thing that I've learned the most from player mm. evaluation and from like talking to scouts because it's, you know, Baseball America is not just like my, these aren't lists aren't like our opinions. Like it's us doing the reporting of like, we talk to GMs, we talk to scouts that have these organizations, you know, we talk to amateur evaluators, like whatever. We talk to scouting directors, player development people. And we try to like give you an insight into what the people around the game think. And you could get like, it's awesome. So like when we do our top 100 list, you know, the BA top 100 list, we send that list out. So we have a, we put everything together in the off season. We put together the handbook. We rank the top 30 lists. So those are done before Christmas time. Um, and we just slow roll it out in the site, but we compile all that information. Everybody has a grade. Everybody has risk. That risk is then deducted from the grade. And then we take that list out and we hand it out to all 30 general managers. We hand it out and to scouting directors, 
um, analysts, you know, analytics heads, et cetera. And we collect feedback and it's like this document, it's like 25 pages of feedback from GMs. And so of course these guys are going to hype their guys. Right. But where you get the real juice of it is like, you start to see the players from other organizations that general managers are talking about, right. The prospects that they think that you should move up or the guys they think that you should move down. And then you start to get like a better understanding of like, okay, like, this is what's going on. Like Jackson holiday had 15 move ups. Well, I think we got to move Jackson holiday up and we already had him in the top 30 or whatever, you know, uh, um, that's what drives a lot of our rankings. But I also think it's a good lesson in like, you could have 30 GMs, you could have three GMs that are one world series and are great general managers, right? Guys that might be in the hall of fame and they could have three separate opinions on Corbin Carroll. They right. could have three separate opinions on Matt Mervis. Right. And like, that's what I think people don't necessarily get. There isn't always one opinion. And, you know, I think the thing that's great about scouting and what I love about going to a game is just letting myself go and just taking notes. What do I notice? What do I see? Um, one of the things I always try to track is I love watching pitchers. And it's my, my favorite thing is trying to track where did the guy, what did the guy throw in a given count? So I'll, I'll log each pitch. What was the, the handedness of the batter? What was the count? When did he throw it? How frequently did he land this pitch in this zone? Like, and so like, that's when I start to be able, cause I think mathematically about a lot of stuff, like that's when I start to be able to be more confident in like, all right, this guy doesn't really have command and this is why. And you have evidence that kind of backs it. Right. So I think it's just like little things like taking notes um, and just trying to pay attention and, when you start to pay attention, there's a lot of free information that's out there, mm. right? Um, that it just takes effort and like being tedious about the details a little bit to pick up, right? And you're not always going to be right. You're just like, guy, they're human beings. Human beings also evolve and de-evolve. People get better. People get worse. People's bodies break down. You know, guys get stronger. Uh, you know, uh, they, 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 they figure out if they can how they should be throwing their curveball instead of their slider and they never used their curveball before. Um, they figured out how to throw their fastball a little bit different. They changed the grip on something, you know, they they worked on their bat speed. Like it, there's so many different possibilities for these guys to potentially upgrade deficiencies in their game. Like you can't you can't beat yourself up about being wrong either. You just have to maybe see what those characteristics are that that guy possessed that allowed him to improve in that area. And it sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's a personality thing and you can't know that you don't know this guy on a personal level, but I think what we, we too often forget that like the noise and the data is the human element, right? Like right. that's like, I, I try to be very data driven. Like I learned about pitch movement and all these things from sitting in a scouting section behind the Cape and wanting to be able to identify the connection between like, IVB and horizontal movement and spin axis and all this sort of stuff and results, but also like be able to see it like, all right, I see that he's like this fastball moves like this. Now I see that like his release point is like this now, like that's the stuff for me that like the connection I'm able to make by going to games uh, ultimately is like, then I can be more confident about things. And I also maybe learned that there's sometimes that the ball tracking devices misread shit and I'm totally wrong. So <laughs> I know, right? It, it it it's who it's 
that's a whole separate thing because in in searching through like Max EV differences from this year and last year, I pulled a list from Fangraphs and ended up they had a ball that Ahmad Ahmed Rosario hit that was one fifteen point eight, and Statcast didn't have that, and so I went to the game log. And the same ball that Fangraphs registered as 115.8, Stackhouse had as unregistered. And I watched the at bat and he slammed it right into the right in front of home plate. And it was a high chopper that ended up being a double, you know? And I was yeah. and I was like, wait a minute. So how come like if you're pulling a list from Fangraphs or Stackhouse, you get two different things. It's yep. it's it, it it's pretty crazy. But I think you excellently said that. There's so many things to learn for free when you're just paying attention, you know? Yeah. Um, so hard to go to, I think everybody, a lot of people in life are struggling to like focus on one thing. They got their heads in so many different things, whether through stress or whatever. There's so many things to grab our attentions. And so when you go to a game to really try to focus in on just the game, you know, you always get sidetracked by so many things. And I just, at, at the minor league games, I've been trying more and more to just gluing to the game, you know. Um, like I said, I go into Jersey Shore games because it's close by. And, you know, I know all my fellow Met fans would be like, how are you going to go watch the Jersey? You know, like you could just go to Brooklyn and watch the Cyclones. But uh, there's a lot of tolls involved with that. You know, <laughs> mess with that. But um, I remember, I think I was telling you too, like, I think I was DMing you. It's like, what should I look out for? You know, how should I yeah. watch the game? And um, I remember Luis Medina, um, he he um, pitched for Hudson Valley yep. um, opening day at Jersey Shore, May 4th in uh, 2021. And it's freezing, Jeff. It's like 38. The wind is blowing. My wife is like, this is miserable. <laughs> it was just horrible. And um, he, he hit four batters and walked two and walked two. He only gave up a run and he struck out eight, but he was so on like he couldn't control the ball. And, and then, so just seeing all the different areas where the ball was going, I then just trained like my eyes to watching him pitch. And it just didn't seem like he was letting go of the ball again um, with my non-trained eye, like at the right, like at the same consistent mark you know the yeah. same level you know yeah. sometimes it looked like his his leg was way ahead of him and sometimes it looked like his shoulder was too far out and back and just obvious things but you can see that he had so much good stuff that when it came anywhere near the zone fast you know they were just swinging you know and not yeah. hitting it so it was just an interesting mix but and then that game too um that actually went to like three out of the first four games at homestand. And um, my wife, who's starting to watch more and more bas uh, baseball with me now. Um, well, first, in that first game, Ohapi ripped one down the left field line that we were by the third base side and it whizzed by. It was a line drive, barely got off the ground. And I said, yeah. who is this kid? He just, and the sound of the bat was just so, yeah. wow, you know? Um, so we instantly became fans of Ohapi. But then just watching Stott, Bryson Stott for three or four games. I think he walked like seven times in three games. Yeah. He hit two bombs. And like, even my wife was like, um, is this kid going to be like really good? Because he seems like he's way better than everybody else. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems like it, you know, he just, but he just had professional at bats. And it was all like all these things that was trying to key in on. And, um, and, and 
And it's so funny because not watching a ton of minor league live, I grew attached to him and Ohapi, you know, even as a Met fan, because I watched them from the start, you know, and, um, and the same thing with Andrew Painter this year, we'll get to him like later on when I want to go through some of the prospects, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's tough to try to learn everything all at once. But one thing, like you mentioned, the, you know, the IVB, um, the pitch stuff movement, um, you're really well versed in that. I think the one part I heard you and Lance um, Brzezowski on, I was just, Jeff, I, I don't rewind a lot of pods, you know, but I had to go <laughs> nice. back, you know, and like I'm a big 1.25, 1.5 guy too. Yeah. I had to lower it down to one and rewind because I couldn't understand all the things straightforward, you know, like you guys just had such a great conversation of breaking down pitching. And I was like, this is fascinating to, uh, it's just, it was beautiful. That's what I got to say. It was beautiful, man. So I just, um, how did you educate yourself on all that? And tell me why yeah. it's really important now when we're evaluating pitchers. Yeah. Um, I think that, so the genesis of it is funny. So like I was, around um trackman devices in the summer of 2019 uh on the cape that's the first year that they really blew it up in terms of like they had an affixed trackman at every single park and they had somebody on a laptop like in the scouting section behind um so i started to make friends with some of the trackman kids because i was trying to get like exit velocities on home runs and like spin rates and like velocities on pitches because I hadn't bought a I hadn't bought a radar gun yet. And you know, so I started to learn a little bit about that, but I, I didn't understand like all the other numbers that were coming up on the screen. And mm. um <laughs> it was like too ashamed to even ask sometimes. Plus these guys are working. So like they're not going to give you a full tutorial. Um so like I wanted to know more about that. And like I, I kind of felt like we and we still do to an extent, but I feel like pitching prospects in particular are so difficult because they're so much harder to rank than hitters. And the reason I think that is, is so much development happens for pitchers in the first three years at the major league level. If you look at the successful starters in the majors, almost all of them suck for a year, pretty much. And a lot of them, Max Scherzer, it takes him like two to three years to really like figure out a role, get good at the role. Um, they might be demoted once or twice. Kyle Wright is a good example of that. And then they, they figure out what the right pitch mix is, how to sequence, how to put together a scouting report before a game, the times to trust their catcher. There's all these little elements to like pitching in the major leagues that like are very different than pitching in the minor leagues where a lot of times guys with great stuff can just dominate very, very early. Guys with great change-ups can dominate up until pretty much double A, triple A. Um, and that's a, that's a type of player, pitcher, that if they're change up first, like a righty, and the fastball sits 92, once he gets up to double A, triple A, he's probably going to get worked. But A-ball kids, like a lot of them have never seen a change up like that, right? They've never been, they've never played against a guy who's thrown a change up that could consistently land it off the plate and it looked like it came out of his fastball, right? So there's stuff like that where like, I mean, I, I needed to understand the elements that were out there that I didn't understand. So I felt like I could evaluate pitchers better by at least isolating stuff and pitch types. Like 
what makes one guy like this? Like why is Shane Boz and Garrett Cole very similar? You know, um, like what is it about Jacob deGrom's fastball and the Mariners prospect Bryce Miller's fastball that are very similar, you know? Um, and then you start to learn about traits and you start to like guys that have certain traits. Cause then you can start to correlate mathematically some of these traits back to success, right? like a low release height, a flat VAA, flat vertical approach angle. Um, and you start to just understand and be able to pick out traits. And like, once I said, like I, I went to games and I was identifying, I went to, I, I could read the trackman. Like I was able to then make the connection between what I was seeing and the trackman. And I was also able to watch a game in person or, or live and then back check the data and be like, all right, I got that right. I got that wrong. Hmm. You know, um, because guys' bodies move differently, but there's only so many ways that your body moves, right? So I think some of it was learning about that, learning about like what elements of like a pitching come down to athleticism and why maybe like that stuff portends more velocity gains because of how a guy moves, you know, um, how low he can get. It's not even an extension for me. It's really getting down the mound that I care about. I don't mm-hmm. care if it's six four, six five, seven feet. I care more about like what does that do to how you release the baseball? Because like if you're getting below five and a half feet in terms of where the baseball comes out of your hand, however you do that, that's a lower slot, whether that's getting further down the mound, that when that happens on your fastball, good things start to happen. When you have a good fastball, you can cascade or waterfall every other pitch off of it, right? So that that's for me is like was learning about fastballs. Like during 2020, I was fortunate enough uh, to become friends with somebody by the name of uh, Nathaniel Plotz, who worked for the White Sox for a year as a consultant and now works with uh, XL Sports Management, the the agency. Um, and he's just like he's 20 years old. He's brilliant. He's 22 now. But at the time, he's 20 years old. <laughs> I'm 38, 37. I'm a salesperson who owns Prospects Live as well. And I had like some rep in the scouting community. Dude, I literally just like was like, I'm stupid. Help me figure this out. And what he would more or less do was like he would send me. This is before he was with the White Sox when he was still like working for Prospects Live. He would just be like send me two guys without names and be like, break down these fastballs. All right. And so like by getting things wrong, I eventually started to get things right because I feel like there's nothing that's a better, that's more of a, and this is like a, this is like a freaking bumper sticker, but like there's nothing that's more of a gift than like being completely wrong because you feel stupid and you want to make it right. <laughs> and like, I, I feel like if you start to do that, like you start to figure some of this stuff out. So like for me, like I think a lot of it, like induced vertical break on fastballs in particular, foreseen fastballs or on curveballs. And sliders to a degree is important because it just teaches me about like what type of movement pattern it is. Like, so the, what type, so when a guy throws a high ride forcing fastball, he's probably going to miss a lot of bats at the top of the zone, but he's also going to probably induce a lot of infield flies. And there is probably nothing that's better in baseball as a pitcher than inducing an infield fly. You may not, you may not strut around the mound after you do it, but if you could throw an infield fly ball on your first pitch, every yep. pitch of your every bat, you wouldn't even break 40 pitches. Dude, like, <laughs> right. So yeah. especially if it's in like fly ball territory, those are automatic outs. 
Yep. That's another thing that guys that get high ride fastballs do is, is a lot of swings get underneath them. So like your guys pop that ball up. They don't make good contact on it. It also is a, it, it induces a lot of whiffs, right? A lot of swings and misses at the top of the zone. When you're doing that with your fastball, you're ahead of the game because it's more than likely your most used pitch and your best commanded pitch. And then you can start to throw your secondaries out of the zone, right? And like then you try to get chases on sliders and curveballs and change-ups and all that good stuff. So I think a lot of it was running about fastballs where I think it's most important. Um, on the other stuff, like horizontal break and a slider, fine, how much does it break horizontally? But I really don't care if it is four inches a ride or six inches a dump. Like I really don't care. You know, um, change-ups, you got to watch it. I've always said that. You can get all the numbers in the world. It can look like the best change-up on paper, but the guy can't land it and he can't sell it with arm speed and it doesn't fool you when it comes out of the hands. You're like, that's a fastball. No, that was a change-up. Like, if it doesn't fool you like that, it's probably not fooling the hitter. Um, and look at what the hitters tell you too, right? Like, oh, this pitch, like, even if we have a bad grain of pitch, whatever, who cares? Like, if, you, if every time you watch a guy – he has an incredibly high whiff rate in a pitch. There's some element of that pitch that's working that in like induces all those swings and misses against hitters. So right. I think that's a big thing too. But like, I think looking at the individual data, what's important, IVB, VAA on fastballs, which is induced vertical break. That's how yeah. much. I was going to say, hey, can you quickly just sure. describe like the difference between them? Um. Yeah, so you got the IVB, which is in sure. vertical break, like you said, right? Um, and then the vertical attack angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the big thing with like induced vertical break, it's most important, like I said, for a four seam fastball. It's so if there was no gravity involved, like when you look at baseball savant and you look at a uh, vertical break, that number has gravity included, right? right. And so the number is never positive because all fastballs work down, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even if they say they move, they ride, they just more or less ride in comparison to another fastball that moves at like a typical plane. Right. Um, so we remove it and induce vertical break. And what we're looking at is how that fastball would move with, if they threw it completely straight, it would be a point of zero. Okay. So think of almost like a bullet, a bullet really doesn't move off of a plane a bullet just goes straight and it spins sideways like a football. All right. Mm -hmm. So there's not, there's other elements that I can expand on, but just think of how that moves. So that's a zero. And then anything that moves above that is a positive number. Anything that moves below that is a negative number. Well, four seam fastballs backspin, right? So think of like when you hit a golf ball or when you hit a baseball and something backspins off your bat and it seems like it travels up, 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 and then it kind of drops, right? Versus when you top spin something. And so you hit those top spins in golf and they kind of they kind of like ride along the ground a little bit for a bit before <laughs> they actually do hit the ground and then they'll bump it. And the same thing with like when you hit a baseball. It's the same as like a, a, a four-seam fastball backspins and a curveball topspins, right? So they're moving on act opposite planes so when they move on opposite planes like that what it does is you get a positive number from a four seam fastball typically like a really good number is like 17 to 18 is above average 19 is like easily plus if you're a guy who's hitting 20 ivb it's like elite 
and then you do the same with a with a curveball and it kind of moves around the same principle where like negative 10 inches is a pretty good break and like negative 20 inches is an insane break on a, on a curveball um so you almost look at it as like zero is a slot and then those numbers with induced vertical break it just measures how much the pitch either moves up or down north to south um and then horizontal break is just you know the other yep. factor whether how much it moves east to west or right to left um a change up is going to move you know arm side and a slider is going to move glove side and the readings for arm side and glove side movement um obviously are the the opposite the mirror opposite of a left-hander and a right-hander right um so just think of it that way i think that's that's probably the easiest way is just to think of it as like a cross and everything and induced vertical break moves up and down horizontal break moves right to left um vertical approach angle is a little bit different uh, what's different about vertical approach angle is essentially it's measuring out of the hand, the angle at which the fastball travels to the plate. So uh, a steeper plane is going to be a greater number, a greater negative, because they're all negative degrees. And the flatter a fastball is, which is not traditionally what we think of as a flat fastball, but more it rides, the flatter the plane is the harder it typically is for someone to pick it up out of the hand, um, which is like what makes Jacob deGrom so unique. What makes Garrett Cole so unique. Both of them have low release heights, really high backspin fastballs that have a particular shape that sort of allow it to move in a way out of their hand that it's very hard to get the opposite plane. Cause think about it as a hitter, right? When you swing, when you swing a, a bat, you want to match the plane of the pitch, but opposite, like that mirror image sort of deal, right? Mm-hmm. Where if a baseball is coming in at this down angle, you want to come in at an up angle that's perfectly in line with that. And that's how you make flush barrel contact. Where if a fastball doesn't have a lot of plane down, it's really hard to get on plane with that because you're really starting your swing higher, right? And once again, what's that going to do? It's going to make you pop up a lot more. Um, so I think when I look at VAA, I look at IVB, it's really just to see those characteristics of what's going to create swings and misses and what's going to create, uh, pop-ups. Sorry, it's my, uh, crazy dogs back there. Um, it's funny because I think, I think I got an early lesson on that playing wiffle ball, right? You know, yep. I was a big, to- like, I, I love tomahawk and balls, um, playing, <laughs> playing wiffle ball and then, and my one thing is when you get that high heat that rises up and you can like get the perfect tomahawk or like high swing angle on it you just you know switch just rip the ball straight on a line drive you know um but i find it fascinating all this pitch movement stuff i'm slowly slowly but surely understanding more and more of it you know um but you said something about the changeup, about slowing the arm down, right? Is that more important than like I read? I read a lot of stuff about changeup effectiveness being, you know, it has to have like an ideal velo difference from the fastball. Is it like yeah. more or less like one? Like does one lead into the other, or is anyone more important than the other? I, I think that there's some movement. I think you got to do one of three things you either have to have good velocity separation off of the fastball you have to have good 
vertical separation. So like a, a two degree or greater plane off of the fastball with a changeup. So let's say you have, uh, you know, your Jacob deGrom and you have a, you know, a, a four uh, VAA fastball. You want to have a six or a seven VAA on your changeup, right? So you have that vertical separation in terms of it comes out of the same spot, looks the same way, but then just breaks differently. So I think that's important. Um, and you could win like that. And you don't have to have eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 miles per hour separation, which is a lot of great fastballs. That's why, I mean, changeups, that's why they have that. Um, the other thing you can do is you can just throw a great pitch. Like there are some guys that have five to six to, uh, 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 miles per hour separation. It's really small. They don't have great um, vertical separation. But they throw this like crazy 90 mile per hour pitch that breaks arm side and tumbles downward. And it has this crazy movement pattern where it just works. It's almost like a two seam fastball. Cause there's a lot of guys, like a lot of pitching coaches that just tell guys, like, just throw your change up like a two seam fastball. And we don't care what the velocity separation is. Just like make it like a good moving pitch that is a separator off of your, your, maybe your sweepy slider or your fastball, whatever it is. Um, so I think there's different ways to have it, but I think the thing you have to have is there has to be deception on it. Like you have to think that pitch is something else where like, you don't have to think a curveball is something else. You don't have to think a slider or something else. You never probably think a fastball is something else. You have to kind of think a changeup is something else when it comes out of your hands. And I think that's something you got to watch. Right. And you got to see how the guy throws it. Um, because when guys don't slow down their arm speed, they're not tipping the pitch. Like when we use that term tipping, they're not tipping that it's the changeup. It's really hard to, to like catch that clean, you know? So do you think there's anything, I guess when people are paying attention to the Savant game feed and all the numbers, is there anything you feel like for fantasy at least might be like, don't worry about this so much? You know, I, I think like, I think I wouldn't get too caught up in like minor league batting averages. Minor league stolen base numbers are big ones. Like hmm. talking about prospects. I think you got to look at environments with batting average too. Like, cause there's some guys who make a lot of contact and the approach is pretty good. And then you see like, why is this guy's baby like so insanely low? And it's like, well, because of the environment that he was in, where like he's in a lot of East Coast teams have East Coast part like uh, clubs in like the Eastern League and like in cold areas of New York, like for their AAA teams, like Rochester, Syracuse. You know what those like places are like during the first two months of the season? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, the yeah. Midwest League, like all these teams in the Midwest League, like they're in the they're in the Great Plains in like March and or like in April, it's still really cold, like. You know, like in May, it's still pretty cold. Um, the heat hasn't come in. The ball doesn't travel. Like their hands hurt. A lot of these guys are are Latin and they've never been in cold weather like this before. They've never played in cold weather like this before. Um, so mm, I think sometimes taking lead context to numbers is really important. You know, like you look at the numbers and slash lines in the PCL every year in AAA and they don't make sense, right? Like there's guys that have like 280, 360, 480 slash line. I think it's a pretty good slash line. And then you look and he's like, that's a 99 WRC plus. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, man, because the ball is like travels like it's on the moon, you know? <laughs> oh, that's a good point about, you know, um, like 
like you said, Latin kids maybe who haven't played in cold weather and then they may be exposed to those elements and it's it's such a different game. So it could definitely affect a lot of a lot of that for sure. How do yeah, you think no, how do you think the um the new rules will affect the 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 MLBers this year? And do you think um I guess the prospects that are coming up who have played with it kind of not have an edge, but will just be more able to um seamlessly work into those rules. Yeah, I think that um a lot of those guys will have an edge initially, particularly batters. I felt like it didn't impact pitchers as much as it impacted hitters. And I think that's funny to say because what hitters uh, pitchers were able to do is they were able to get into a rhythm. So like guys were able to just catch and throw. And there was none of that step out, spit, you know, adjust your junk six times, you know, adjust your batting <laughs> gloves. Like none of that stuff happens now. Like you don't get timeouts. You maybe yeah. get one and it back. So when a pitcher has a rhythm like that, it's much easier for him to just throw. And I felt like I was seeing guys like go deeper into games. They were throwing more strikes. Um, their pitch quality was better. Brian Bale with like from the Red Sox, he was it was like four seconds in between. So when he started to use that tempo was like, uh, it was cool. It was like watching the the uh, uh, an NFL offense that's running the hurry up, right? It was like all of a sudden, like like, like Philadelphia, like Jalen Hurts, they're, they're just putting pressure on you, man. They just keep on running plays out there, right? Mm-hmm. And so the defense is winded. It's the same deal. Like he's fatiguing the shit out of a lineup on the other side. And like, that was kind of cool to see because you don't see that in baseball. Right. Um. Because the thing that's unique about baseball that people don't talk about is it's the only game where the defense starts every play with the ball. That doesn't happen in any other sport, right? Mm. So every single play, the defense dictates the pace. And by stepping out of the the batter's box and doing all this junk, the hitters for years were able to dictate the pace. So I think it's actually putting a little bit of a power back in the, the pitcher's hands. Um, those guys that that maybe take a little bit longer – they'll take they'll take 11 seconds now you know they'll take 13 seconds with a guy on base um and pickoff moves are terrible and more often than not don't do anything so like the fact that we're limiting some of those with some of these pitchers isn't so bad what it will do is the good instinctual base stealers will get their couple of pickoffs and then they'll make their runs and it will be on good throwing catchers to make those plays so hopefully we see a lot more base running. Um, I think we will. I think the success rates will go up. Um, you know, but I, I do think there's going to be some give and take in terms of pitchers having to get to the plate a little bit faster. Like that's how you make it up. Like regardless of pitch pickoff moves, you make that up by setting your catcher up, you know, with a fastball, <laughs> well located that you get to the plate under like 1.6 seconds. Like that's going to be a big part of it is I think how quickly guys get to the plate versus how quickly they get out of the stretch and throw, you know? Yep. Um, I think that's the thing that's being underrated is how like Kyle Bodie from um, was previously with the Reds. Now, of course, you know, he's the founder of driveline. That's his big thing on this. And he had been saying it for a few years uh, and just in terms of you want to control the running game, get the ball to the plate faster. Right. Um, so we'll see, we'll see if that's, you know, what the differentiator is, I think, but it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I really do want to see more base running, you know, the ball and play more would be cool. Um, and I don't think it's going to take away from the guys that can hit homers, man. They could still slug. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just going to bring a whole nother element and just make it a, a lot more exciting. 
Um, it should be fun. Definitely would be fun. It's interesting what you said about just being more more of in a zone. You know, as a pitcher, you're staying more in a routine. Because from what I like, a lot of the things I read or have heard from people, they're afraid about the max effort being in a shorter span. But I like that point that you're saying about just staying more in the rhythm, just catching and throwing it instead of, um, and and then not not have to wait for the batter to do whatever he's doing, <laughs> like dead grabbing his shit and he's walking around. And I yeah. I also hated that too when I played ball. I was a big like I was if anything. If I had to take a deep breath, I would always pivot from my, my back foot and like I would just swing my left leg around like just to look away from the pitcher and the catcher, just take a deep breath. But I felt like if I lost my footing for both feet, I would have to start over again in some weird fashion. Yeah. So I tried to avoid that, you know, <laughs> I tried to avoid being behind in that area. I just wanted to stay in there and wait for the next pitch. Um so let's let's talk about some of the top prospects in the game right now. Um, there's on the NFBC site through January 1st to now, we got some guys that are going pretty early in the draft. And I just wanted to see how you think they were valued on themselves and then for the like, you know, maybe some other players around them. But but Corin Ca Corbin Carroll is um, going on average at 73 right now. Um what you feel for him, and I guess what your prospects about him fulfilling this ADP right now. So I really like Corbin Carroll. Um, the thing that he brings to the table is just a really well-balanced skill set. He's an above average to plus contact hitter. He gets on base. He rarely chases or you know gets out of his approach, which I think is important for these young guys that find success early. Uh, he's got power. He hits the ball really hard it's funny that the, the exit velocity data in his small major league sample is much much worse than his exit velocity data in double a and triple a this year which is like like top 10 percentile in, in like i mean like you know over 90 mile per hour average exit velocity like 106.5 90th percentile uh, 40% hard hit rate. Like he hits the ball hard. So I don't, I don't, I think he's being underrated a little bit in that sense. Like I made a bet, like an offhand bet um, in our bet board at, at BA, where we, we kind of like bet with each other about certain things. I said, he's going to hit 30 home runs this year. So like, Ooh. and that's putting it out there. If Julio did it, man, this guy's a bet. I think this guy's a better, has better plate skills than Julio, though he doesn't have the raw power Julio had. He's got a better ballpark gonna get to hit in cores i'm just saying you know um and the other thing is he's a top of the scale runner he's an 80 runner and he's gonna yeah. steal bases uh this is a five category guy i'll put it out there now i think this guy's gonna go in the top two rounds in 2024 like i don't even think it's a question um, oh, and i love gunner baby. i think gunner has that upside okay um but we take defensive uh you know the fact that he's not you know gunner being an infielder helps out a lot gunner has more raw power gunner has huge raw power and has running ability and hitting ability on base ability, all that stuff. Um, I think the better fantasy player probably is Corbin Carroll. Okay. You know? Nice. Yeah. Uh, that's a big, that's a big tag on him. Um, 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 I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm board drafts in and I haven't gotten him yet. And now he's going to have to trickle up my board a little bit for sure. That's uh that's a super amazing upside. You slapped on him this year, but I guess, um, you know, top two rounds, he, he really, I mean, if he gets to that area where he's 20, 30, he's going to be there, you know? And if 
You're yeah. saying that, you know, that's a possibility. And it seems like it's, you know, within his reach. Um, but I did see that differential on his stack cast numbers and the minors compared to the majors. Um, and he had a couple of shots too that hit the top of that wall in uh Chase Field, led to have that high home run line that yeah. I think he, he definitely displayed some decent power. Um and so Gunner, he's getting a lot of I think a lot of um negative feed into his play like his ability versus left handing pitching. Um it was a small sample in the majors. Do you think that's gonna be something that might like re- relegate him to any type of platoon or just ineffectiveness. I don't think he sits at all, but no, I think it's going to be that he maybe has like two at bats a game where he's like not an elite hitter. (laughs) Like there's only so many lefties nowadays. And with like the three batter rule and some of that stuff, like you're not seeing loogies anymore. Like he's not going to see that many at bats against lefties like it's not you know six years ago where they would have brought in a lefty every single time to face david ortiz right um and we've seen guys that are in the hall of fame that had some of these same platoon issues against lefties his power is so big that he's just got to catch something um he's hit quality all throughout his career and he's still not a chase guy like his chase rates are low that's the kind of like hitters that the orioles are developing right now all these guys are like OBP uh, league, like absolute targets. And I think that's a difference. It's like maybe there's some batting average concern, but certainly not like on base percentage. And he's defensively really strong and he can run and the power is huge. So Gunnar Henderson, I think he's getting a lot of love too, because there's like this specific third base cliff that happens right now in the NFBC. And he's kind of like the last one to grab before it goes into some risky area. Um and the Matt Chapman line. Like the I was Matt looking at Chapman the other night. line. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at it the other night and like I grabbed Manny Machado in the second round of some mock that I was playing around with, you know, because this time of year before I'm doing any serious stuff. It's like, you know, Clegg's done Steam mock and I don't do a ton of those, but like, like, you know, if it's somebody I'm friendly with and they ask me to, I'm like, Yeah, I'll do it. It's fun. It's on fan tracks, fine. So, like, I'm looking at that cliff, and this is the first draft I've done this year because I try to wait until later I get more information. And I'm like, what? I'm like, it was like Machado. And then it was like, what? like it's a cliff. Yep. It really, after Henderson, like, there's not a lot of upside either because you kind of know what a lot of those guys are, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah third base got really bad. I feel like it's- six years ago, it used to be a great position. I, I totally agree. And I actually like, I'm a big fan of more of the end of it. Um, like in the 240 range on, like the Justin Turner, the Yandy Diaz, even even a chance of like Juan Mancada. I'm more of those guys than what's really in that middle, you know? Um, <laughs> like I'll take the, I know where Justin Turner is and Yandy, and they're just going to, they're going to play every day, almost every day. And just, I know what I'm getting. There's no volatility in there. Like, and then yeah, because yep. Gunner and, and 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 then there's a fifty pick difference to Max Muncie, and then you got Jose Miranda, who I don't really think I don't really understand why he's a hundred picks ahead of Justin Turner, who's always hits very well, and we're kind of unsure about that. But yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty big cliff. Um, one thing that I really oh, lo- lo- oh, again, I was gonna say, don't you feel like sometimes the guy like Turner versus like some of those other names like Miranda. 
Like there's some dynasty league rub off and like redraft leagues. You're like, I don't understand why, like I get there's upside there, but like his upside is he has like a Justin Turner type of year. <laughs> I know that's what you know, that's like, why I it's not yeah. like you're going to get it for eight more years. You're only drafting for 2023 guys, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really strange. He, 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 he kind of sticks out there because Muncie and Suarez sandwich him and you know, they're just going to get power with no average. Same thing with Chapman, you know, and then Hayes is just, you know, everyone's, I guess, banking on, it's good that you get 20 steals a third. Hopefully he can have a better output, but then it's just a bunch of Brandon Drury and Josh Rojas and Ryan McMahon. Yeah, you yeah. don't know what these guys are going to be. Um, Do not draft guys for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like guys yeah. don't even have oh. a list. Like they'd have to fall so far off of ADP and it would have to be like a draft and hold or like a, a, one of these DC 150s I like to do. Like th- those are fun. So, like, yeah, maybe if like they drop so far that I had already filled up my lineup and pitching and was like, well, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. But like, I feel like there's so many, you hit a point where there starts to be guys that like are so far written off, but have opportunity that you're like, it's almost better to just like not waste the draft capital on one of these other guys. It's like that's, that's similarly risky. The upside isn't that much higher. Yeah. Yeah. What's your thoughts on Jordan Walker this year? You think he starts out um, in the majors with the Cardinals? So I love Jordan Walker is probably like my favorite athlete in the world. Um, I had the opportunity to, to chat with him and Mason Wynn before the futures game last year to do an interview. It was where Mason actually called, uh, he called his, his shot with a hundred mile per hour throw to me. Um, we asked him because the week before O'Neill Cruz had set the, the, the stat cast infield throw record. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm going to ask about this. And Jordan, man, was like, was already, was like, was like Mason's hype, man. Like he was like building up his friend there. Cause they did the interview together with me and it was so cool to see. And then like being around those guys in AFL, uh, Jordan, Jordan is generally like, he is like Julio. Like he is a star, man. When this guy gets up, like if he's good and, and, and everything, like he hits for power, he does all the things he's going to be able to do. He's the kind of guy where like everyone's going to like him. Like he's going to be on the marketing stuff for kids. Like he's going to be, uh, you know, like he's going to have like big home runs where he like gets excited and like, you know, the shot's going to be like, he's, he's one of those kind of guys, like a transcendent kind of like face of the franchise kind of player. Um, He's so tremendous because like his abilities on the baseball field from what he was as an amateur where he swung and missed a lot. He's really tightened that up. And every year it seems like he takes a step forward. And I think when you see guys like that, you see guys like that that do stuff like that in the minor leagues. It's someone like Francisco Lindor, right? Where like people wrote off the power, people wrote off a lot of the offensive game with Lindor, but every year he added a new wrinkle to his game. He got a little bit better. And I think with Jordan, you think about, how much better his contact and approach could be. And still the fact that he was 20 years old in double A and hit 300 and did all those things, and he could still get better. He could still tighten it up a little bit. That to me, like this guy could be a superstar. That being said, he's got it. He legitimately needs to learn a new position because he's not going to be a third base. Arenado is going to be there. They want to move him to a corner outfield spot. He's got the arm to do it. I think he's got the athleticism to do it. And he can be a Dave Winfield kind of guy in the outfield, Aaron Judge, a bigger body that moves pretty well and has a good arm um, and hits for a ton of power, like that kind of prototypical corner outfielder. I think he needs another year. Like, I wouldn't bet on him this year, and like, I wouldn't draft him in like a DC. Now, hey, if he gets called up and the Cardinals start him and they play him every day, I'll be wrong. It's a little risky. 
I think in dynasty, great pick, definitely a guy you want to have in your team. Um, definitely somebody to keep an eye on in leagues. If he's not drafted and you can then add him through waivers later in the year, don't think he's a great stash early. I could be wrong. He's got no triple a time. He's learning a new position. There's some swing and miss stuff that he's got to kind of tighten up. Like I said, still 300 hitters, still hitting tons of bombs. Still needs to tighten up a little bit. The Cardinals have no reason to rush him either. They still have a good major league team. They have plenty of guys in the offense. They have a lot of guys they got to fit into the puzzle right now. Yes. And he's yep. not and he's not on the 40-man roster. That's yep. a big part of it. They got to make a roster move, which means they got to get rid of somebody to add him. So when that's the case, I'm typically off that. Like I think 40-man roster tells you a lot of stuff about what the opportunity is going to be there in fantasy the next year. At least like with some certainty that like, hey, if this guy's available to call it the majors, they don't they just gotta put a guy in the IL. They're gonna put guys on the IL all season long. If they gotta release a guy, right? <laughs> that's a little different because you don't like to have spots that are clogged up on your 40 man roster. Even the best teams, the Astros who are deep, they still got three or four spots that are kind of fluid on the back of their 40 man roster. Or maybe it's like a reliever or a number six starter kind of guy, an up and down uh, in you know utility infielder, they'll move that guy back and forth with options because they're not too worried about somebody else picking them up. You know, um, yeah, that makes there's sense. all those mechanics. I think you got to think about that stuff. I think Walker's a great talent. I think he's going to be a high draft pick in 2024, but wait until 2024 to own him. You don't you don't need to uh, you don't need to pay for it now because he's going pretty early in drafts. It seems. Yeah, it's actually – yeah, no, he is. He's uh, – since since January 1st, he's 263, um, right ahead of Birdie and Yandi himself. Um, his max in that time is 353, and that was actually me. <laughs> um, I was in a uh, draft to start the new year, and um, in my sheet, even in his 350 plate appearance um, for Steamer, um, especially about 400 – um, but I downed it to like 350. Um, he still came out in my SGP sheet as like combined rank, you know, 355. And so I was like, oh, this he lasted to the spot where he matched on my sheet. So and I kind yeah. of I kind of had a third baseman already. So I wasn't really concerned about and I had a corner. So he was just going to be a stash. And it's just a little upside play. And but that's the thing There's he's not on the 40 man, like you said, and there's a, a ton of talent there on the Cardinals that I don't know what they're going to yep. do with, you know? Um, but whenever Paul, Hajan, yeah. like, you know, whenever they admit that he's not going to ever hit the ball again, <laughs> right. There'll be a spot right there for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, so. um, let's, let, let's talk a little bit about two pitchers, Grayson Rodriguez um, and Andrew Painter. And I know there's been some big talks about, Grayson definitely starting with the team to start the season. And Dave Dombrowski has come out and said they're not going to have any any um, holding back about trying to get Painter up if that had to mean they go to a six-man rotation. So I guess I want to see your realistic outcomes for them as well this year. Yeah, I mean, the big thing, you know, once again, I'm going to go back to this. Grayson's on the 40-man roster. They have an opportunity to put him in the rotation. Had he been healthy last year and there hadn't been physical stuff, I think he would have been up. Um, you know, that was kind of one of the things that was going on in the background was, you know, I think there was some thought that he might get called up and there was concern about some of the fastball velocity dipping a little bit. And then there was some physical stuff that showed up and they kind of shut him down and played safe with him. 
I think it's all systems go this year. He might be on a you know a pitch count and a limit. It might be more like eighty to ninety pitches early on, and it builds up to something bigger. I think that's what we're looking for with Grayson. If he's healthy in spring training, and there seemed not to be a lot of red tape around his his um, his appearances, I would anticipate he's probably going to be in the rotation, and he's probably their best starter. Um, you know, it's it's a great pitch mix, really good. Like across the board, he might have the best pitch mix in the minors. It's deep. He's got five pitches. He's got a bunch of different shapes. You know, he can run it. He can spin it. He can ride it. Um, really whatever he needs to do with the baseball, he can do that. Um, big bodied guy. You know, I think this is the first time he really had any sort of health concerns. So you got to hope it was just something minimal and they were like, just kind of managing him with kid gloves, knowing what was coming up. And the fact that they didn't need to make a 40 man roster move until this off season. So in this November, when they added him to the 40 man roster, I think it kind of changed everything a little bit. Um, you know, talking about painter. Painter is my favorite pitching prospect. I saw Painter a few times in the minors last year. I think he was the most, I think he's the most impressive pitching prospect I've ever watched. Uh, I was on stage up at FPAS and I compared him to Doc Gooden. Like I said, this must be what like watching Doc Gooden must have been like when he was 19. Like, because you don't see teenagers that are ready for the major leagues. He could have gotten out to the majors. I don't know if he would have been an average or better starter right off the gate, but like I could have put that guy in for an inning and he could have gotten a lot of outs. And that stuff is live. His fastball command. So he's the guy where like you watch his ability over a few starts to land his fastball in all these different spots against all these different hitters, get guys to chase, you know, get guys to, to, to hit pop-ups and ground balls. Like he's not afraid to go after guys. He throws a lot of strikes. His slider is really good. He doesn't even throw his change up that much yet. And that's a pretty good pitch. And he's got a good, a cur- good, pretty good curveball too. Like he has a lot of different things that he's not even necessarily utilizing yet because that fastball slider combination is so good that even double a hitters were overmatched by it, you know? Um, So he's a guy I'm interested in. I have no idea if he's going to end up in the major leagues this year on ability. He could Um, the Phillies are a competitive team, which I think always throws some of the 40 man roster stuff out the window when it's a truly competitive team that maybe has a deficiency in a particular area. Yeah, I could see him. I could see McGarry. I could even see Abel spending some time in the major leagues this year in some way, shape, or form. Painter, unlike McGarry and Abel, is probably more likely for it to be just as a starter, starting out and just go from there. Where, you know, I think McGarry and Abel both have um, not necessarily relief risk, but kind of start in that role like a lot of the Brewers guys do, like, you know, uh, Woodruff or Burns or Peralta or Ashby, right? You just keep naming one every year. Where they kind of, or Chris Sale was like this with the with the White Sox too. They kind of come in in a bullpen role and they kind of build up a little bit and then they get that opportunity. Christian Javier is like that. Um, I think you know Abel has the stuff, McGarry has the stuff. But that's the case, but they're probably going to take a little longer to develop. Where Painter for me, like he can go out, you can put him five, six, seven innings and let him pitch, and he's probably going to get outs. And I would probably bet on an ERA below four. So you know mm-hmm. the, the results are there. He's just. He's unique. You know, I, I I never thought I would see a teenager at double A dominate the way he did and like walk away and been like, if I didn't know who this guy was, if he told me he was 25 and had major league service time, I would have been like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow, that, yeah, he's that advanced. Yeah, I saw him. I saw him twice this season at, at Jersey Shore. And the first time was just a quick three inning appearance, um, not appearance, but three inning start for his Hudson Valley. But the second the second one was again um 
seven innings, 11 strikeouts, and he was just, I mean, like you said, like Doc Gooden-esque, you know? It's just, it, it was just, he just seemed he was on another level. You know, it was a com- complete game, shut out. You know, and it was, this guy is just, and he was, like you mentioned with the pitch clock, he was just a machine with it. He was just ready to throw and seemed like he knew it exactly what he wanted to do. And, um, I mean, that was one of the quickest games I was ever at, too. <laughs> it was so quick. It was an hour and Beautiful 38 night. minutes. I was like, whoa, is this over already? <laughs> I, had a, I had a sub-two-hour nine-inning game the first week of the pitch clock. And I remember, like... My it was we were in vacation in Florida, and because I'm a pain in the ass, I drag my wife to like games in Dunedin. So I'm like, oh, we'll go out to dinner with us. Fine, she comes with me. And like Marco Raya, who's a good Twins prospect, was starting uh, that game against Dunedin. And he, like I'm not kidding, like he was just phenomenal for seven innings. The bullpen came in. It was an hour and like 58 minutes for like the total game. And like I remember I tweeted it out, and I was like getting text from scouts around the country like you lucky son of a bitch you got a two-hour game (laughs) you know like batting practice and the game and like you're out of there by like his game started at six without a bit by eight like i was like i could like go out to dinner like i can never do that after a game you know so there's some benefits to that i think people that work in baseball like the pitch clock more than anybody that's why it's not going away yeah right oh man that's uh it's interesting it's interesting because like you know i think I knew that it was going to be their pitch clock, but once I saw the numbers starting to tick down, you know, like, oh, wait, there it is. That, that This is it. It's real. And then you become glued to it. It became yeah. a thing. I wanted to see what the batters and the pitchers were doing. Um, so now I wanted to talk about some uh, deeper prospects, maybe guys that we can, like, might might have a chance to come up in the second half because I think a lot of – um, like you mentioned, a lot of that dynasty is creeping into the NFBC. And I think we see a lot of, it was a couple of teams last year in the overall that did really well. And they hit on some back half later guys last 10 rounds, like even a Jake, Jake McCarthy, you know, like he wasn't on a lot of people's radar, but anyone who took him in the later round just scored huge. Um, And then obviously, you know, we get the, you know, some turnouts like, you know, the, the, the Schwindels um, of the world that come out of nowhere and give us some production. But I don't know if you, you know, if there's anyone that's like kind of known that we can expect to come up um, and give us something like a Kyle Manzardo or Mead or Colton Kowser. And also maybe if you can think of anyone, you know, in that Schwindel, Joey Manessis mode, maybe that we're not thinking like, Hey, this guy is going to get a shot to get some work in. Yeah, so I have one, and he's funny. He didn't get picked in the Rule 5 draft this year, even though he was left unprotected. And I know that there's teams that are interested in this guy, and he's really interesting from the sense that he he sort of like remade his swing in the middle of a season. So it's this guy, Corey Jolks. He's an outfielder from the Astros. And – um, I know that JJ and myself had written about, like I cover the rule five draft, like, you know, as part of my job, um, with baseball America, and it's sort of like, uh, a, a passion thing for JJ and I, that we very much spend a lot of time covering the rule five draft. So he had started to check out Corey jokes who I had gotten like some pretty good feedback on. Cause I cover the Astros list 
um, for BA. So I'm talking to folks inside the organization, et cetera, et cetera. But what we started to figure out with Jolks is that so like they remade his swing in the middle of the year. So um, like in 2021, all right, like he hit 31 home runs, okay? And it's wild because like if you look at his home run rates, I'd have to pull the numbers up, but if you look at his home run rates prior to him going on the development list, and I could look at it actually right now on MILB when he went on the development list. But if you look at the home run rates on, on this dude prior to him going on the development list, which is a list that the guys will typically go on if they have like some like disciplinary stuff or like they're legitimately going to like rework your pitch or they're going to rework your swing. So they did that with him in June of 2021, June 29th, 2021. Okay. He was activated a month later on June or three weeks later on June 20th, 2021. This guy's home run rate per at bat was like cut by like a third. Like all of a sudden he started to hit for power. He had always hit for OBP. He got on base. He had good, pretty good batting average. And then like he put up a monster year and then like follows it up, you know, this year um, in AAA with another really good season where he, you know, he hit 31 home runs this year. Um, like there were significant differences, obviously I messed up and said 2021 before, but there were significant differences in this guy's performance from one year to the next, you know? Um, and a lot of it came down to just like a swing adjustment. And I'm not even sure that everybody necessarily even notices that, you know, they might just think that Corey Jokes had a big year because he was in Corpus Christi and then Sugarland. And then they're like, all right, like, no, like there's actually some development that happened where this guy figured something out and started to hit the ball in the air more and started to hit for more power and didn't lose those contact and on base skills. And he can play a bunch of different you know positions in the outfield. He can play all three outfield positions. So really he's a corner outfield guy, but that's a guy for me. Like you want to take a last round flyer on Corey Jokes, like, yeah, man, he could be on, <laughs> he could be on, like we could draft him tonight and he could get traded to the Tigers in two weeks and end up on their 40 man roster. And is probably better than Matt Fairley, who people are hyping up and he's got less platoon issues than Fairley, you know? Wow. Yeah. I'm so looking Jones, at his, yeah. I'm looking at his Bangor page right now. It's pretty, pretty impressive that year that he had yeah. pretty, pretty decent strikeout rate walks. Um, and it, Looks like he also hit a ball 112. That's pretty solid. Um, Corey yeah, Jones, I, maybe, uh... maybe too. That's why they really didn't rush out to try to get like um, another outfielder. And, you know, I know there's some concern over Chaz McCormick and Jake Myers, but yeah. um, that's pretty interesting. I like that. Corey Jokes. <laughs> Putting him in the yeah, queue. Name. There you go. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And take a look that. at that. If you look from. Uh, if you like, look at his game logs, his minor league game logs there on on Fangraphs, and you look at from that period in in uh, June uh, twenty twenty one, where he goes in the development list, and then look at everything after, like you definitely see, like okay, like there is definitive skill development here, like something happened, and it's the Astros; they're constantly turning lemons into lemonade, dude, like. It seems like every single year they have some guy that wasn't ranked highly on prospect list that all of a sudden is like ranked highly on prospect list, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, I see it now. And it seems like 
once he went like by I guess by August, once he had a couple of like a month and a half with this change, he just two two, three hit games scattered across the month, multiple home runs games and yeah. see a bunch of really big stats. Wow, yeah, that is that is eye popping. Huh. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a big difference. He had 17 home runs in his minor league career prior to that. You know, 17 home runs, and it was over uh, 300 games, you know. And then you look at you look at from that date forward, and he's hit, you know, a majority of his home runs as a professional. So, yeah, definitely just late skill development. He's 26, you know, um, was a later round pick. Sometimes, you know, human beings, man, they evolve. They get better. You know, they pick up skills later than other people. <laughs> I like that. That's it a, happens in yeah. your life every day. Right? Yeah, you know, we, absolutely. We about it. Yeah, we should always right? be trying to pick up more and skills and different skills every day. You know, knowledge yeah. and 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 skills and learning should never end. You know, that's 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 a good throw out there, Corey Jokes. Oh man, Jeff, if uh if I hit it big in the DC this year and he's on my team, which Corey Jokes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we're gonna go on a nice trip, um, <laughs> dude. You could, uh, you could just, you could just buy. When I'm in Jersey next time, you could just buy me, buy me some good subs. Just lead me in the way of the best subs, and I'll be fine with that, dude. You know, I love right, to eat man. food. You know, my wife's from Jersey, so believe me, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I got them. I got the spots right by me. No, no doubt. For All right, sure. good. Um, I want to I want to talk about some second year guys and also some kind of post hype guys who maybe didn't meet expectations, specifically Detroit Tigers, Riley Green and Torkelson. And I just wanted to see like what your opinion on what you saw from them last year and what can we expect maybe going forward? Yeah, man, it's tough. Torkelson like was one of the more advanced college hitters I saw. I saw him as a freshman on the Cape on the field in a Cape Cod League game. His Summer 2018, June 2018, Alec Manoa was pitching. Uh, um, Andrew Vaughn was playing first base for Wareham. Uh, Bryson Stott was playing shortstop for Wareham. So there are all these like major leaguers in this game. And Torkelson is a freshman. You know, he's a year behind, a couple of years behind these guys. And it's like, this dude's as good as Andrew Vaughn, right? Um, so I was like, I saw him twice. I saw him the next year on the Cape. Like he was one of the most advanced college hitters I ever saw. I did not think that he would needed the minor leagues really even. And started to see him struggle a little bit with certain stuff in the minors, but he still hit enough, got on base enough. There was enough power. When he gets up to the major leagues, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow. Like this is another thing that taught me a lesson. This guy doesn't swing at anything on the outer half of the plate. Like you can just hammer him in the outter half and he's going to take it all day long and even if he does swing on it, he doesn't make great contact. And I think that guys just figured out how to pitch him. And then he just got out of himself and out of his swing and started to do things that he had never done before. And I think it snowballed. So you got to hope that there are some developments this year, but this is a very bad sign because this is like Keston Heria. This is like an advanced college hitter that you thought was just going to come up and rake. And then all of a sudden doesn't work. Riley Green, I'm more optimistic on. Riley Green, I think there were still positives that you could take away. His, his season wasn't, altogether like the worst thing you know like I, you could start him in a deeper league every day and it wasn't going to totally kill you you know like you're in 20 some of these 20 30 team leagues that i'm in like you still start a guy like that um the defensive values there is going to keep him in the lineup um and he's really really young like he's really really young 
It's a bad park to hit in, but he's somebody I think like he'll make adjustments. There's potential value this year in Riley Green for me. Um, I'm still grabbing him in Dynasty. I think I took him in one of these mocks in like seven or eighth round. If he's a later round guy for me and like, you know, you can grab him as like a your first bench guy, utility, like your final outfielder. You can do a lot worse. Like I think there's a lot of upside that things tick up just a little bit. He makes a little bit more contact. The approach is just a little bit better. The power starts to show a little bit because of those two factors. And this is a hit tool guy. Guys always had good approach. Um, you know, his father's a high school baseball coach. You know, he's been around swing coaches and 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 you know hitting coaches his whole life. He's going to make adjustments. I don't think it's going to be a problem. I'm less concerned with him than I am with Torque. Because I think there's a lot more ability there, you know, where you start to see Torque not hit, and you're like, oh, he's still he's a six one right right first baseman. Like that's not a great category to be in. Where you're like, eh, Riley Green hits left handed. He's six foot four. He's going to grow into more power. He's really athletic. He can play center field. There's all these things that still have value to me, and I think that's the big difference between the two. You know? Yeah, I got um our friend Dylan White is um. He's 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 after my Riley Green in Dynasty, so I I, I a good sign. My ears perked <laughs> up, like yeah, you know, like I I did some diving on him, you know, obviously early in the season, in this drafting off season, and you know what I really liked is that even Dylan was talking about, you know, when he came on my pod, that he handles all pitches really well, you know, he yeah he can't really, you know, he's got a good approach and he doesn't really have a weakness for any one pitch, so that's a that's a good sign. And plus, you know, if he sticks up at the leadoff spot, there's plenty to be had in, in that volume sense too for any redraft league this year. Um, so yeah, I definitely like Riley Green. Torkelson is troublesome, you know, just um and he hits he hits like he hits all his fly balls to opposite field, you know. He I mean, when he does yeah. pull pull some of his fly balls, he you know, he gets into the barrels and you know, that's that's the spot that I think he's gotta get to more, but it just seems like he's, uh, you know, he's got he's got that approach that's not helping with this new ball either. I guess you know. Yeah, when guys um, when guys start to not pitch you on the inside because they can actually land the ball in the outer part of the plate, like it's really hard to pull the ball. Right? There's not a lot of guys that can pull the ball in the outer part of the plate. Like, it's just not natural. So you got to be able to do something with that stuff in the outer half, whether it's fight it off go the other way, you know, drive it up the middle. You got to be able to do something that forces them to like take that element away. And I think that he doesn't have that right now. And that's, that's kind of concerning, you know? Yep. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I'm going to give you a little picture. Would you rather, um, for this year, redraft George Kirby versus Nick Lodolo. Oh, dude. Oh, <laughs> dude. This is so not fair, man. Um, Wow, I like both of these guys a lot. Um, I know Dylan has Ladolo higher. <laughs> Dylan is Dylan was hyping up Ladolo more than me. I'm gonna say Ladolo because I talked to him in the offseason. I like Nick a lot in a personal level, so I'm gonna be rooting for him. And I made a big trade before the season last year when I knew he was getting called up because I had heard it behind the scenes. Swore to secrecy not to break it. Uh I went and I traded for him for like pennies on the dollar in a dynasty league. And now he's a force up for me. So, um, and it's a, a head to head points league. So a, a good pitcher is very important. Yep, I want yep. it to be him. Uh, I just think that they need him. They need him to pitch a lot of innings. Um, he can keep the ball on the ground. 
He gets a lot of swings and misses. He's a really unique lefty. And he was really good last year as a rookie in a really tough place to pitch. I kind of believe in Lodolo. Um, I think that with Kirby, they might pump the brakes on him a little bit. They might put some kid gloves on him at certain points in the year. They might limit him to maybe five innings per start, even when the pitch counts are pretty low because he throws so many strikes. Um, I think if you're looking for wins, though, it's a wins league. I think you probably lean Kirby. It's very close for me. Um, I like the pitcher with Lodolo better. I think that the setup with Kirby in certain situations in a standard five by five is probably better. It's it's that's a do that is a seriously hard choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I you mean, know, I then, want them both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could have them both right now in the NFC with the ADP being like a hundred and about a buck 20, 25. Yeah. So, you know, you can get it, but um, I'm finding that more and more, you know, we did, I did a, um, I hosted a, a very, very early draft champion in August of last year. So while the season was still happening and we were still playing our, our season off last year, um, I said, because you know what? I was listening to the podcast and everyone was talking about where is uh, J-Rod going to go next year and where is this guy going to go next year? I said, so let's let's just find out. You know, I was like, yep. so I did this little draft and um, I had a little too much tequila by round seven and I took Lodolo pretty much at his earliest spot and mostly it rooted like I didn't have a pitcher at the time and I passed up on guys like Zach Allen and other, other pitchers. But um, I I had him on my team at the time you know, in my fab leagues and my main event league. So I was just like, and I love watching him pitch. I guess that's why, that, that's why I lean a little bit more than Kirby. Cause I just really enjoy watching his approach and the way he goes at batters. Um, And I think he's going to be really good, but, and Kirby, you're right. I mean, they do have a lot of options at, at starting pitching, you know, they, you know, Marco Gonzalez is their fifth, but he's still got Chris Flexen in the bullpen that they can bring up. So maybe if they do feel like they want to, you know, lessen the load on some of the younger kids like Kirby, they can do that. Um, but mm. it's 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 definitely it's definitely a um a pivot point because I'm trying I'm trying to get a lot more pitching by a, by like round ten than I did last year. I was right. getting like three starting pitchers. Now I'm trying to really feel comfortable with four. Um so a guy like Lodolo on one team I have as a three, but I really feel good about him on the team who I have as my SP four because, mm. you know, I can afford to him to be a little more of that roller coaster, perhaps, and not trust him and just giving me, you know, 160 innings and being like an anchor, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. See what happens. Um, <laughs> Let's uh let's talk about the rule five guys. Um, any expectation for impact in fantasy this year from Ryan um Noda, Thad Ward, Blake Sable. Is that how you say it? Sable or Sable? Yeah, Sable. Sable. Yep. And I heard you speak about Wilking Rodriguez on your podcast, which was an interesting story. Um Yeah. Right? He's it's like, uh he's like real life Kenny Powers. Man. He's a real <laughs> I mean, I'll, and I'll root for any real life Kenny Powers. Yeah, he had man. PE, he had a PED suspension. He was out of out of affiliated baseball. He'd been with the Yankees before that. Guy pops up in the Mexican League last summer, and he's throwing absolute like darts, man. Like sitting ninety six to ninety seven with a hammer breaking ball, and the Cardinals are all over. Cardinals want to sign him during the season. Okay, Yankees want to sign him during the season. What ends up happening is his Mexican league is team is like competitive, like they want to win a title. So they do not release him. They don't let him sign, 
which is rare. Uh, it usually isn't the case. He ends up signing with the Yankees in the offseason. The Yankees couldn't protect him on their 40-man roster. So we had no idea who this guy was. He hadn't pitched an affiliated ball in years. He gets picked in the Rule 5 draft, and like JJ and I are like, I mean, I dude, I had data on every pitcher in the Rule 5. I did so much work on the Rule 5 draft, okay? <laughs> and then I'm like, who is this guy? I have no idea who this guy is. I've never heard of him. I have no... And so then we start, I end up talking to Mike Gersh, the GM of the Cardinals afterward. And Gersh in the interview with me is like, yeah, well, we liked him in the Mexican league. He actually tells me he throws a cutter. The guy doesn't even throw a cutter. The GM of the Cardinals didn't even know what the guy's secondary breaking pitch was. Like, that's how off the radar this guy was. Then I start to see the clips. And the guy is like a nasty closer, like attitude, the whole bravado thing. He's throwing smoke. He's got a breaking ball. So, yeah, it was like real-life Kenny Powers. I have no idea if he stays in the 40-man the, – the active roster, if they think he gets pitched out of the pen. I'm just saying it's an interesting name. Like, watch out. Like, it wouldn't shock me if, you know, he's a guy that ends up being a reliever for them. Um, I don't think he's going to be the closer or anything like that. Um, no, but that sounds exciting. Like, the whole – But it's kind of an interesting path. story. I know. I baseball, just... man. Yeah, you gotta love baseball, man. That's, that's you don't just get stories like this in the NFL. I'm sorry, like you don't no. get some guy who's pitching in the Mexican league. <laughs> you know, like it just it doesn't happen, right? Um, that's pretty wild, man. He's really that's interesting. Thad Ward, I liked as the number one pick. We did the rankings. I like Ryan Noda. Those like my two top guys. They ended up going one two. I felt pretty good about that. Um, Ward, I saw in AFL, and he's kind of funny. Ward would have been on. The Red Sox 40, man, I truly believe this, had he not gotten hurt at the wrong time. So he got hurt at the beginning of 2021. And what that meant was he missed all 2021 pretty much and all of 2022 with the exception of like the last like month of the season and then pitched in AFL. He just kind of got passed over by other guys. They made other 40-man decisions that they had to make. I still think they should have added him. I think a lot of people think they should have added him. They didn't. He ends up getting picked. But I mean, when I saw this guy come in in the AFL, and there were all the fantasy guys were there because it was the same week as F Pass. So like there were a bunch, there's a big fantasy section that had like Govier and Cross and Welsh and like uh Jason uh Collette and like you know, all those dudes, maybe like Justin and Spore and everybody. We were behind home plate. And like this dude was shoving. I don't know if they noticed, but like he legitimately was throwing a two-seamer. He's got a four-seam that rides. He's got a sweep and slider. He's got a curveball that's a hammer. He's got a real changeup. He'll mix a cutter in there. He's got all these different shapes. And the guy just has insane feel. And he's really only had like one full healthy minor league season. And I think he won Red Sox minor league pitcher of the year in 2019. Like that was his first year, full year out of the draft. He was great. He's just not. He just got hurt at the wrong time. Man, the, if the Nationals don't have much, they have a plenty. They have a lot of opportunity. There's not a whole lot else there, but there's a lot of opportunity. I think Ward has an opportunity to potentially be a starter. If they think they can build up his pitch count to what it was prior to the injury, and they feel like he's further enough beyond it now that it's been two plus years, okay. Like, I think there's some like they're legitimate upside for 120 innings this year. And he's a pretty good starter, and the ratios are pretty good. You know, like a late round flyer, fine. Ryan Noda is interesting. Noda 
is probably the best defensive first baseman in the minors or one of them. Hmm. There's not many guys you hear like, oh, he's a 70 defender at first base. You hear that nonstop with Noda. He can play corner outfield. Um, I mean, he could play, like he played 30 or 40 games in the corner outfield over the last couple of years. Like he's played right field a lot. Got a gun. It's a huge arm. Um, so that certainly helps. That covers some ground if you're not the most fleet of foot. Um, Adam Duvall. <laughs> There's contact issues, but it's not so bad that you're like, this dude can't hit. He's got elite on-base ability. He never chases out of the zone. So you're going to get that plate approach, that OBP. And he's got legitimate plus power. Like, as he started to figure out his swing and hit for more consistent power, he was really good. And so I, another guy I've gone out and a ledge on, I stated this in a podcast with NBA, and I got some pushback from, like, front office folks. They were kind of messing with me about it. I think he's going to be a top 20 first baseman in baseball next year. Like, I think he is better than a lot of first basemen that get like every day at bats. You look at some of those guys at the bottom of that list. There are some terrible baseball players that get at bats, like washed up dudes, et cetera, that get at bats at first base. This dude can hit. And had he not been on the Dodgers, had this guy been on the Oakland athletics already, he probably would have been in the major leagues last year. You know, like there's five or six teams where this guy would have started and maybe hit like fourth or fifth. I mean, the Marlins have Garrett Cooper. Like, I honestly don't think that he's not better than Garrett Cooper. I could be wrong, but I look at what he's done. I look at the approach. I look at the defensive ability, the flexibility that he could potentially be an outfielder too. That's a really interesting player. It's not that different from like Taylor Ward was. Like, I think there's, I think there's upside here, and I think he's being underrated a little bit because he's not yet in the the starting first baseman slot on roster resource when people look at it. And they're not necessarily wrong, but they spent this pick on them. The freaking athletics have to hit on something. <laughs> they got to save money some places. This is a really good way for them to save money and get a player and kind of get a little Max Muncy revenge for the Dodgers doing the same thing. And right. more or less stealing back a guy that was left. Max Muncy was eligible for the Rule 5 draft and didn't get taken but ended up on the Dodgers and ended up being a breakout. Like there's a lot of guys that are in this corner infield corner outfield position where they're down the defensive spectrum and te- real life teams don't value them as much as they probably should considering a lot of them are better, particularly hitters than a lot of guys who are ranked ahead of them. And I think note is good, man. I'm like the Ryan Nota truther. So you're yeah. getting a little bit of like the info wars take on <laughs> Ryan Nota here, you know? I think um, when the draft happened, I was in the late, late, late stage of um, a DC and I scooped them up in like round 48, you know, and I was like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm liking this. But, you know, then they go out and they sign like a a Jesus Aguiar, you know, and it's just like, ah, come on. Like, uh, it just just throws a wrench in like somewhat of the PT extra that I was hoping for, like. You know, I guess Seth Brown now is going to be moved more into the outfield role, and yeah. Aguiar Noda, and we'll we'll split time at you know first and yeah. DH. Or but but if you're saying he's a good defensive first baseman, he's probably not a probably not, not a gonna, DH candidate, right? They're not going to well, they're probably not going to play Aguiar there. Like I would think that he yeah. can DH and they can play him in the corner outfield. They're probably not. I here's the other thing is depending on what those deals are like, right? I say this about the Hosmer thing all the time with all the people panicking and nervous. Trey Mancini is a real contract that could impact what happens with Mervis. 
They are not going to, if, if Eric Hosmer isn't good, they're not going to care about $700,000, dude. It's the league minimum deal. They're just going to cut them. They can think guys like that get cut in spring training all the time, right? Yep. It's yep. like when the Patriots used to go sign like Tory Holt. Like, Tory Holt's going to be good this year. And then he gets cut the week before the season starts. <laughs> like, they don't care. It's a minimum deal. That's yep. just throwaway money to them, right? Yeah. So, you know, they're going to have to pay $100,000 to like return, you know, Ryan Nota or whatever. They don't want to pay $100,000 to the Dodgers, dude. Yeah. You know? The, yeah. the, the athletics need that money, man. They got to pay for it. soda. Yeah. They got to pay for soda in the locker room, guys. <laughs> oh, man. All right, buddy. That's, uh, that's Meatball. He's being a pain in the ass right now. And kids, oh, yeah, I do. I do. Meatball. I do have a dog named Meatball. I don't just call people Meatballs because, uh, you know, I'm I'm constantly calling someone a Meatball every day. So, um that's him right there making a grand appearance on the podcast um but jeff thanks man this has been great um you're always like i said you're always filled with the best knowledge um and i appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk to me it's a it's been long in the making and um yeah man you're the best keep doing what you're doing and tell people where they could find you on twitter and where you're working at and yeah all that fun stuff yeah, Baseball America, um, baseballamerica.com. You know, it's a subscription website, but I think for you get a lot of bang for your buck for what you get. Um, you get daily prospect coverage, um, you know, updated prospect lists throughout the season, the industry leading top 100. And for all the fantasy people out there, we just hired Dylan White. We're going to be building out a lot of new stuff on the fantasy side um, with some information that we have access to that almost nobody in the public space does and trying to leverage a lot of that stuff to turn it into tools and actual things. We have a new website coming in April 1st. So it's going to be an upgraded experience as well. Um, you know, I'm hoping to be able to pull our list and some of these things into like APIs, et cetera, sort of like Rotowire does. So you can run your, you can run your whole league through uh, you run your whole league through, through baseball America and kind of your teams, et cetera. Um, and we're just gonna have a lot of great coverage. So you know, I'd say it's definitely a, a good time to to sort of jump aboard. And we got a lot of interesting stuff in the works that will be announced in the next couple of weeks that I'm excited to bring into the space. But uh, it's fun as somebody who's now a prospect writer, but gets to kind of get back involved with fantasy again. Um, you know, I'm in my second childhood, man, having a good time. <laughs> That's really great, man. You had such a, such a blessed um, experience in this whole, you know, baseball sphere. And I just love hearing your story, man. Cause you're just, like I said, you're genuine, you're honest. And um, I love your angle to baseball and you, it's great. And um, yeah, it's uh baseball America. is going to have to be on one of my things to add to the toolbox this year, for sure. Um, for fantasy and just baseball in general, like you said, and um, I appreciate your time, man. And um, I'll talk to you shortly. Yeah, man. Anytime. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Poe Hitter Podcast. This is Rob D., the Dead Poe Hitter. Once again, you can find me on Twitter at Dead Poe Hitter, at Poe Hitter Pod. I invite everyone. I have an open dialogue. So everyone who wants to talk sports, life, whatever it is, don't hesitate and hit me up. This is the, you know, obviously the ultimate time to really be crunching in on drafting and your draft prep. So make sure you have the right actionable tools to guide you to your success 
into this fantasy season and I hope to be providing you with the best fantasy resources that I can throughout the podcast and in season I'm going to be really trying to help everyone get the best they can out of their fantasy seasons and so all I would say is tune in keep tuning into the show keep keep tuning into Twitter going to be announcing some big news for um, some of my plans for in season stuff and Hopefully you guys can come on the ride with me because um, you've been really special and I want to keep doing this for everyone in a manner that I can with dedicating as much time as I can to it. So thank you for everyone for leaving a kind review and a great rating to the show. It means so much to me and the podcast and don't be a bag of shit. <laughs>